2016, emergency services were called to a property in Flintstone, Georgia. 27-year-old DJ Ficky was dead from a gunshot wound. Initially believed to be a suicide, valuable evidence was lost from the crime scene, leaving DJ's family to wonder if they'd ever see justice. I'm Charlie, and this is Crime Lines. Tonight's case is one I covered on my other podcast, Impact Statement. On that episode, it was an overview of the case, and the focus was more on the impact this tragedy had on the family. This episode, though, this is Crime Lines. We're going to go into the details of the actual case. And this is a case that needs a wider audience. One, because justice wasn't done in this case, and public pressure can help cases get a second look. But the other reason is because this is what happens if an investigation takes a wrong turn. This case file, looking through it, gives us so much information about how things can veer, how things can go wrong in the investigation, It shows that it's possible that early missteps prevent a solvable case from being solved. And we occasionally talk about cases here where the family doesn't agree with the official ruling in a death investigation. I just did one last week. This case, though, is unique because I don't think the police agree with the official ruling. It's the DA who won't prosecute and the medical examiner who won't reconsider her ruling, that's what the issue is. But they're making their decisions based on the investigation. So this interplay is showing why this case is not solved. But I am getting way ahead of myself right now. Let's get into the case. Donald J. Ficky Jr., who's always gone by DJ, was born in 1988. He was the only boy of Kathy and Donald Sr.'s four children growing up in Alabama. Possibly in response to being so outnumbered by sisters, DJ developed a sense of humor where he would just tease and pester them, but it was always in a funny way. They would get aggravated, he'd burst out laughing, then they'd all be laughing. DJ's sister Amanda told me that DJ hated when people were in a bad mood. He wanted to bring everyone up. Even if he was struggling at the moment, even if he was a little sad himself, he would do what he could to cheer other people up. He had this desire to fix things for people. And we will see this come into play in his relationships later. DJ had a major mark in his teen years that really knocked him down. When he was 14, his father died. Now, this was hard on all of the children and, of course, Kathy, who was then left to raise her kids without her partner. But for DJ, this was devastating to the point that it really sounds to me like he lost himself in his grief. He and Donald Sr. just had a really special bond. And 14 is such a crossroads for most kids developmentally and socially. 
This made everything going forward just a bit of a struggle for DJ, but he still took on his role in the family trying to cheer everyone else up. And you can imagine how much harder that was after Donald Sr.'s death. In 2013, when DJ was 25, he met a woman named Brandy. They had been dating, but it was really pretty casual. And it wasn't for a very long time when she got pregnant. The couple decided to try and make a go of making a family for their baby. And in March of 2014, little Jack was born. When Jack was still a baby, Brandy and DJ got married. And then in June of 2015, Brandy had twin girls. So we're talking three babies in just 18 months. But there was a lot more going on here. DJ and Brandy were both addicted to drugs. The children were all, thank God, born healthy. And DJ repeatedly tried to get sober. He had this pattern of getting clean, then relapsing, then getting clean. Brandy, for her part, was largely not ready for the work of sobriety. She just wasn't there yet. The couple would break up and get back together fairly often. Brandy would go back and forth between DJ and a man who we're going to call Mike. On her own admission, Brandy said she was with Mike largely for the drugs that he readily provided her. DJ and Mike knew each other well, though there was obviously a lot of tension between them because of this love triangle. Meanwhile, please know that the children in the situation were totally safe. DJ's mom, Kathy, took custody of all three of them in 2015. The Ficky family is one of those families that always takes care of their own. So the kids have been in a stable home providing for their needs and their wants, and they have been doing great. DJ called the kids and visited all the time, even though he didn't have custody of them. He accepted somewhat reluctantly that he and Brandy had to get themselves better before they could take care of their kids. This is where DJ's fix everything, cheer everyone up, bring everyone up personality comes into play. DJ knew if he could get away from the drug scene, away from Mike and the assorted people they hung out with, he would have a shot at staying clean long term. But he didn't want to leave Brandy behind. He would leave, he'd clean up, and then he'd go try and get Brandy. He wanted them to get clean together, get their kids back and be a family. But like I said, Brandy wasn't there yet. She wasn't ready to get sober, and DJ wasn't ready to leave her behind. And when someone is getting clean, they really need to stay away from the temptation to use again. But DJ kept going back to Brandy, and then the pull of addiction was just so strong. And this was a large part of his sobriety and relapse cycle. A lot of it had to do with his relationship with Brandy at the time. So let's talk about this Mike guy I keep mentioning and the physical backdrop to this case. Mike lived in a fairly rural area of Flintstone, Georgia. It's about 45 minutes from DJ's hometown in Alabama, which is where his kids were living. 
On the property, the main structure was a trailer that is generally referred to as Old Man's Place because an old man owned it, so creative name. There was also a camper on the property, and that's where Mike lived. Sometimes people would park their cars there on the property and sleep in their cars. There was a shed where someone else lived, and this was not a very stable living environment, obviously, for anyone. The trailer basically became a drug house, and the people who lived in and around the property would do drugs in the trailer. In September of 2016, DJ was bouncing between places to stay. He and Brandy were not together. And during this month, DJ made a number of calls and texts and visits to family and friends. In the middle of September, he called his sister Amanda and left her a voicemail saying that Brandy was back with Mike and that he was going to leave old man's place so he could try to get sober and clean again. He left for a few days, but then less than a week later, he went back to old man's place. This time, he told his mother that Brandy and Mike were acting weird towards him, and he was afraid. He thought they were planning something. What he thought they were planning was that they would kill him and then go to Kathy's to kidnap the kids and then, I don't know, go on the run. DJ was also, in this time, sending some urgent texts looking for a place to stay. He was essentially homeless at this point and staying at old man's place out of desperation. It's not completely clear why DJ thought they were going to kill him. He was using meth, and that can cause paranoia. But looking at the whole picture, he may not have been paranoid. Mike may have said or done something that made him believe that this was true. Around the same time, he told a friend that if anything happened to him, the police needed to look into Brandy and Mike. This time, though, we have a glimpse at why he was worried, because he showed his friend some bruises he had gotten when he said Mike attacked him. He also said Mike pulled a gun at the house one night when he overheard DJ and Brandy talking about getting back together. DJ backed off when Mike pulled the gun because he didn't want to provoke Mike into actually shooting anyone, which he fully believed Mike was capable of doing. In spite of Mike's threat, at the very end of September, DJ and Brandy did get back together. DJ called his mom at the end of September to check on the kids and talk to them, which is something he did all the time. There's no doubt that DJ was living an unstable life without a safe roof over his head and a lot of drama and going back and forth with sobriety, but he was always connected to his kids. He knew how hard it was to not have a father. On this phone call, little Jack asked for a toy train for Christmas, and DJ told his mom, don't buy it for Jack because he wanted to be the one to get it for him. And DJ also told Kathy on this call that he had convinced Brandy to go back to Alabama with him to get away from Mike and get away from old man's place and the ugly scene over there. So this is the very end of September, and DJ thinks things are looking up. He and Brandy are going to go back to Alabama. They're going to get clean. They're going to have Christmas with their kids. 
days later, on Monday, October third, DJ texted his mom from what turned out to be Mike's phone. The exact times are inconsistently reported because in that forty-five minute drive between Old Man's place and Kathy's house, you cross a time zone. So I'm just going to give you generals because the exact times aren't necessarily that important. In the late morning, early afternoon, DJ texted his mom that she had to come get him right away. She asked what was wrong, and he said he was sick and needed to leave. Seven minutes later, he texted that he was going to wind up dead if he stayed there. With some prompting from Kathy, he confirmed, yes, he was fighting with Mike, and yes, it was about Brandy. Kathy knew it had to do with Brandy. That's what they fought about. We have these two men, DJ and Mike, and they both want to be with Brandy. But these were toxic relationships all around. Mike was obsessed with Brandy, but it was a controlling obsession. He didn't want to be with Brandy so much as he wanted to possess Brandy. He controlled her through threats, through violence, and through drugs. DJ, on the other hand, wanted to save Brandy. I've talked to DJ's sister Amanda about him, and we talked about their life growing up and losing their father. So I'm going to do a little armchair psychology here. I think DJ idealized his life before his father died. He saw that as the good times. Mom, dad, kids, all going through life as a unit, family dinners, trips to the beach. He wanted that back. And he thought if he could get Brandy to go to Alabama and get clean, they could get the kids back and have this ideal family unit that he remembered having that he wanted to get back. But it wasn't going to be that easy. Addiction isn't a switch you flip. And Brandy, not being in the place where she had the same vision as DJ, she wasn't wanting that. She wasn't ready for that. He couldn't make her do it. He couldn't convince her that that's what she should want. But he tried. DJ seemed to think that if he could find a place for them to stay in Alabama, a stable situation, Brandy would be willing to leave old man's place with him. So the same day as he's texting his mom, he texted that they need to leave old man's place to save their lives. And he asked if they could stay with Kathy. So these texts, I've seen them. They read exactly like a mother who knows how to put up healthy boundaries with a son dealing with addiction. Kathy was dealing with some pretty serious health problems at the time, heart issues, and she was looking at a major surgery coming up. So she told DJ, no, he can't come back and live with her. Between her health and the baby she was caring for, this was all she could handle. The drama DJ and Brandy combined, that relationship, what that brought into her life, living under her roof would be too much. She was sorry, but the answer was no. She gave him options of places he could stay in their hometown so he would be near the kids, but she held firm 
that her house wasn't on that list. While Kathy is saying no, DJ is messaging people on Facebook, desperately asking for someone to come get him. He told one friend that it would save his life. She asked how, and he said, me and Mike are trying to kill each other. She replied 10 minutes later and didn't get a response. Mike had already called 911 to report that DJ had shot himself. Mike is actually a pseudonym being used for this episode. The family has asked me for legal reasons not to reveal his full name. And this 911 call is where he gets the pseudonym because they mistakenly call him that and he doesn't correct them. Anyway, on this call, Mike said, I tried to get the gun and it went off. He had it in his mouth and I was like, oh man. He then identified the gun as a 12-gauge shotgun. He didn't say this on the call, but for your information, it was a sawed-off shotgun. He did say DJ was still breathing at that point. The 911 operator kept asking questions, but Mike eventually just stopped answering them. There was yelling in the background. Amanda told me that that is Brandy's voice. That was Brandy yelling. As the yelling continues, Mike hangs up with 911. 911 calls back and Mike answers. The operator picked up with the same questions, but you can tell he's pretty annoyed with Mike at this point. Mike answers a few more questions, but again, he's more focused on Brandy yelling. And eventually, they're both basically sharing the phone, and Brandy's trying to answer some of the questions, but she's so hysterical that she's mostly just crying and wailing into the phone. You then hear Mike yelling DJ's name, maybe trying to see if he'll come too, I'm not sure. But there was yelling, not answering questions, and they hung up again. So 911 calls back again. So this is the third call. And this time, it's like they escalated it to the supervisor level because this is a new dispatcher, and she is trying to get Mike to focus up. She talked to him about the gun and asked where it was, and Mike said it was in the chair with DJ. But then Mike said he actually picked up the gun to see what type of gun it was before he put it back in the chair with DJ. So the dispatcher, after confirming that Mike had already touched and moved the gun, asked Mike to go ahead and secure the gun, unload it, and lay it down somewhere out in the open. And this was the first major issue in the investigation, and police have not even gotten to the scene yet. This was a single-shot shotgun, so it actually didn't need to be unloaded. But by having Mike do this much handling of the gun, walking through the scene, going up to DJ's body, there is now an innocent reason for his fingerprints and his DNA to be pretty much everywhere on the weapon, near or even on DJ, and so on. Mike and Brandy were not providing any type of life-saving measures to DJ. 
They should have been told to get out of the house without touching anything else. I understand securing the gun is definitely a safety protocol for the police. It makes it safer for them and for EMS to enter the trailer. But this is starting at that base that we are automatically accepting Mike's story that DJ shot himself. Every scene needs to be treated like a homicide until proven otherwise. And this shows that this was an assumed suicide based on Mike's word from the start. Instead of wondering if Mike or Brandy may have been the ones with the gun, they instructed Mike to secure the weapon. Kathy was notified of the shooting, and so Amanda's husband drove her the 45 minutes to the trailer. And of course, before they got there, the police arrived. When first responders arrived on the scene, they found Brandy and Mike outside the trailer. Mike was holding the shell casing from the shotgun, and the gun itself was on a shelf inside the trailer, and a deputy removed it and put it outside. Mike was asked what happened, and here his story already changes from what he said in the 911 call. Now he claimed he went into the trailer from his camper around noon to take a shower, but Brandy was already in the bathroom getting ready. DJ asked to use Mike's phone, and Mike gave it to him. He then went to a back room, and while he was in that back room, he heard a gunshot. He ran into the main room, living room area, and found DJ on this love seat slash oversized chair covered in blood. He then called 911. So on the 911 call, he said he saw DJ with the gun in his mouth and they struggled for it. Now he's putting himself in another room entirely when the gun went off. He also insisted there were only three people there when the gun went off, him, Brandy, and DJ. He said both he and Brandy were in different rooms, so no one saw what happened. Brandy was hysterical when first responders got there, and she sort of just nodded along. She didn't really give any statement of her own, but she also didn't contradict Mike. Now, Kathy alerted the investigators to these texts that DJ had been sending. Mike was saying DJ who was afraid he was going to die and actively trying to get out of that trailer to save his life, DJ actually changed his mind and decided instead he'd kill himself. That didn't make sense. Kathy told the coroner the same thing, and he told her they were going to go ahead and do the autopsy, even though the witness statements supported that this was a suicide. Investigators asked Mike to submit to a gunshot residue test, and he agreed, but said he shot guns the day before, so that might affect the test. They told him that GSR only lasts about four to six hours on a living person's hands. It's just like any other dirt or debris you have on your hands. It eventually gets rubbed off, if not washed off. Shooting a gun the day before wouldn't make any difference at all. Now, hearing this, Mike goes back to his 911 story. He was in the room. He had tried to get the gun away from DJ when it went off. And this is very convenient. So if he had GSR on his hands or his clothes, that must be why. 
As the armchair sleuths I know you all are, your alarm bells are going off, and you might think this is the time where you bag DJ's hands so that he can be tested for GSR on autopsy. And you might think it's time to seal off the trailer and mark the possible homicide box on your paperwork. That didn't happen. DJ's hands were never tested for GSR. According to the medical examiner, it isn't a routine test, even with possible suicides. She only runs that test if it is specifically asked for, and the investigators didn't ask for it. The crime scene was not secured. People were allowed to walk in there. Kathy, who thankfully arrived after DJ's body had been removed from the scene, was even allowed in there. Mike asked about cleaning up the blood and was given the go-ahead to clean the very same day. Later that night, they even burned the chair-slash-love seat that DJ was sitting on. But before Kathy and Amanda's husband left the scene to go home, Brandy hopped in the truck and asked if she could go with them. Amanda's husband was like, yeah, no, the family was already drained, and they didn't know what happened that day. They knew DJ was in fear of his life, and they were pretty sure it had something to do with Brandy. They had always been good to Brandy. They were among the most supportive family that Brandy ever had in her life. And that's in spite of how they felt about her bouncing between DJ and another man and her influence on DJ. Aside from all that, they still treated her very well, but this was too much. They left without her and she spent the night in the trailer. Later the next day, Brandy finally left the trailer when an aunt of hers who had heard what happened became worried about her and went and got her. As soon as she got in the car, she told her aunt what really happened in the trailer when DJ was killed. Brandy said she was in the bathroom getting ready and DJ was walking between the bathroom and the love seat. He told Brandy they had to go back to Alabama and Brandy said she didn't want to. Any situation in Alabama he could find for them was temporary. It wasn't like they had found an apartment to live in or a house or somewhere that was long term and she didn't want to go. They bickered a bit and DJ went to the living room and that's when he was texting his mom and texting his friends looking for a place to stay or at least a ride away from the trailer. Brandy left the bathroom and walked to the living room where DJ was sitting. She saw Mike enter the living room from a bedroom that was really close to where DJ was sitting. Mike had the sawed-off shotgun in his hand. Mike was screaming at DJ. DJ looked up from the phone, saw the gun, put his arm up in a defensive move, and that's when Mike pulled the trigger and shot DJ in the face. Brandy wanted to tell police this the day DJ was shot, but she was so hysterical and she wasn't separated from Mike when they were being questioned. So here's another issue. If the witnesses had been taken to the station to be questioned or at least separated or Brandy given a chance to calm down, she would have told them the story within an hour or two of the shooting. They could have pivoted to a homicide investigation much earlier. And Brandy's story is fully in line with another incident. 
Because if you remember, DJ already told people about a time when Mike overheard DJ and Brandy talking about getting back together and he pulled a gun on them. And that's exactly what Brandy is saying happened this morning. They were talking about getting back together and DJ was trying to get to Alabama and Mike pulled a gun. Brandy said that entire night after DJ was killed and into the next day, she wasn't allowed to leave the camper or use the phone. Mike told her that he would go to prison if she talked. And others at the property also threatened her, telling her that they knew where her kids lived if she was tempted to go to the police. By the time she told her aunt this the next day and her aunt called DJ's family, the police station was closed. So Brandy went in the next day, so two days after DJ died, to make her statement. She also disclosed to police for the first time that she, DJ, and Mike were not the only ones in the trailer. Two other people were there, a man whose street name is Fatboy and his girlfriend. So at this point, the investigation is changed to a suspicious death, except no one told the medical examiner. She conducted her examination under the assumption this was a suicide. And if you look for a suicide, that's what you'll find. She wasn't told for a month that the focus of the investigation shifted. So police went to Mike and they confronted him with Brandy's statement. He admitted that, yes, Fatboy and his girlfriend were there, but they left the home before the shooting occurred. He again said he was in the back room. He first said he heard a bang, but then quickly changed it to hearing Brandy yelling. Then he said he entered the room and saw DJ with the gun in his mouth. And now this time, he couldn't remember if he tried to get the gun from DJ or not before DJ pulled the trigger. So now we have a sort of maybe new story. This is actually more of a blending of his previous stories. So we had Brandy saying Fatboy was there, Mike saying he wasn't, and it took a while for investigators to even find Fatboy. Brandy and Mike didn't actually know his real name. He didn't have a fixed address. I mean, the day DJ was killed, he was sleeping in his car parked on this property. But they were eventually able to find him, and he backed up the suicide story initially. It's clear based on the investigative reports that police were not about to walk away quite yet. They continued to interview people who lived at the property, including re-interviewing and polygraphing Mike. But before we move on to that, I just want to say what a nightmare this was for the family at the time. So they believe, at least at this point, that the investigation is finally moving away from suicide what they didn't know was that the medical examiner hadn't been told this, but all in all, things looked like they're headed in the right direction, even though they weren't sure why Mike hadn't been arrested after Brandy made her statement, and they had trouble getting really open and direct answers. Two days after DJ's death, Amanda called GBI to find out how long the autopsy was going to take so that they could make funeral arrangements. They were told that the body was already sent to the funeral home, and if they wanted more information than that, they needed to call the coroner. But Amanda had already called the coroner, repeatedly. He never answered. 
His voicemail was always full, and she couldn't even leave him a message. She had no way of getting in touch with him. So she called the funeral home directly instead, and they didn't receive DJ's body. It turned out GBI sent his body to the wrong funeral home. So can you even imagine this? Two days after your 27-year-old brother is violently murdered, you find out that they don't even know where his body is at this point. Now, it was all cleared up, and they had DJ's funeral. But the family couldn't even see him, aside from a small part of his arm that they were allowed to view. The extent of his head and facial injuries from the shotgun and also the damage done on his body through the autopsy process meant that the best they could see uncovered was part of his arm. So just remember that in the background of this investigation, there is a grieving family who is dealing with full voice mailboxes, bureaucratic runarounds, and no solid answers. So let's go back to Mike and the polygraph. On October 17th, Mike consented to a polygraph against attorney advice. And the two primary questions were, did you point the gun at DJ and did you shoot DJ? He answered no to both. And the examiner determined that deception was indicated. So now Mike has another story. He said that he came into the room to see DJ pull the gun from the couch cushions why someone was storing a 12-gauge sawed-off shotgun in their couch cushions is anyone's guess. Mike said DJ put the gun up to his own mouth, and Mike, worried that DJ was going to kill himself, tried to grab the gun. There was a struggle. Brandy grabbed Mike's arm at some point, and this is when the gun went off. So this was similar to what Fat Boy had told the police what happened. And in both of these stories... Fatboy and Mike's DJ was the one with the finger on the trigger. But what would this case be if not for more changing stories? Because four months later, on February 14th, 2017, investigators re-interviewed Fatboy and they pressed him a little harder. Circumstances had changed for him. He was now in jail, so he was not living near Mike, dependent on Mike for anything, including drugs, and he was relatively safe from retribution. This time, he admitted the suicide story was a lie. He said DJ and Brandy were fighting and everyone in the trailer was getting annoyed with the bickering. Mike told them a few times to knock it off, to shut up, and they wouldn't. At one point, Fatboy was in another room and thought what he heard from the living room was a fight between DJ and Mike about to break out. So he went into the living room to intervene. And when he walked in, he saw DJ with the barrel of the gun in his left hand. So the barrel of the gun. Mike had the handle of the gun in his right hand. Brandy was yelling at Mike to stop. And as Brandy pulled on his arm, the gun went off. So this story is pretty similar to what he had told before, except this time he said... DJ was not the one with his finger on the trigger. It was Mike. So Amanda found out about Fatboy's new story, and she decided to go to the jail and ask him herself what happened. He told her what he had said to the police in February, but he also said he was sure this was an accidental shooting. Mike had only pulled the gun 
to shut DJ and Brandy up with all their fighting that morning. He was just trying to scare them into shutting up. And Fatboy said he knew Mike wouldn't have shot DJ on purpose because he wasn't that kind of guy. So this story leaves us some room for something other than murder. Unlike some states, Georgia doesn't have degrees of murder. An unlawful killing is either felony murder, murder, or manslaughter. So felony murder is an unlawful killing while committing another felony. So like someone robbing a bank who shoots and kills the bank manager. Murder is any unlawful killing where there is intent to kill. It could be planned for years or it could be decided in the moment. The level of premeditation can be taken into consideration at sentencing, but there isn't a difference in the severity of the charge. And then manslaughter is an unlawful killing without the intent to kill. Waving a loaded gun in someone's face with your finger on the trigger is at the very least manslaughter, but you could probably argue that there was intent. But that would be for the DA to decide how to charge him, and we'll get to that. So back to what Fatboy said about Mike not being capable of killing someone. Later in the same conversation with Amanda, Fatboy said it took him four months to come forward with the truth because he didn't know if Mike would kill him next if he ratted him out. So why be afraid for your life if Mike isn't the kind of guy who kills people? For what it's worth, this isn't Amanda telling me what was said in the conversation. All jailhouse visits are recorded, and Amanda was able to get this tape through a FOIA request. So I heard exactly what was said myself. So what evidence do we have here? We have two of the three people who witnessed the shooting say Mike did it. The only person not saying Mike did it is Mike. We don't have GSR tests. We don't have prints from the gun because Mike admitted to touching it, so they didn't bother printing it. Based on the timing of the messages DJ sent, he went from asking for a ride to get away from Mike's to being shot within two to three minutes. So we hear these stories and we say to ourselves, drunk people, high people, they do inexplicable things. They make decisions we can't even comprehend. But this does not make sense. He was talking to a friend about getting a ride. He was actively saying, I need to save my life. I need to get out of here. But then he decided to shoot himself. Even high, that doesn't make sense. None of this makes sense. But the DA, who could decide between manslaughter or murder, decided this wasn't a crime. He declined to even take the case to a grand jury. His reasoning is Fatboy had already changed his story once, and the DA also deemed Brandy unreliable due to her drug use. Because Mike, who liked to think himself the drug kingpin of Flintstone, Georgia, he is apparently the reliable one in this situation. The medical examiner had ruled the death a suicide, even though this right-handed man shot himself with a sawed-off shotgun on the left side of his face. She didn't measure his arm span to figure out if he even could have reached to shoot himself at the angle and the trajectory recorded, because this was a downward angle. Downward, because he was sitting in a chair and apparently lifting the gun in the air and then firing. This downward trajectory, though, that backs up Brandy and 
Fatboy saying that Mike was standing over DJ while DJ was sitting. DJ's death as it stands today is officially ruled a suicide. One of the reasons the medical examiner gave is that DJ tested positive for meth, which is a stimulant. She reasoned that if a man on a stimulant had a gun in his face, he would have defended himself. Well, both witnesses said he tried to defend himself. Fatboy said he grabbed the barrel of the gun, whereas Brandy said he moved his arm to knock it away. And this discrepancy could be explained by a couple of things. They were viewing what was happening at different angles, so it may have looked like different things. But also, this happened very quickly. DJ looked up from his phone, Mike standing over him with a gun, and the gun is in his face. And by in his face, I mean practically in his mouth. He moved his arm to get the gun away, and Mike pulled the trigger. There is no amount of meth in this world that's going to give you lightning reflexes or the agility to get up when someone is standing so close to you, standing over you while you're sitting down with a sawed-off shotgun in your face. But with that ruling standing, the DA declined to go to the grand jury, declined to press charges, said there wasn't enough evidence, and they closed the case. So Amanda turned to a private investigator named Eric Eccles, and he takes on pro bono cases as he can. He was the defense investigator on the Tanya Croft case and wrote a book about it called The Eccles Files, Catoosa County Justice. He uses the profits from that book to fund his expenses for his pro bono cases. And the Tanya Croft case is unreal. So go on Amazon, buy his book, and know that you're helping a family out and learning about a really weird case. But anyway, on this case, Eric did a fresh round of interviews with anyone he could get to talk to him. Because so many of the people involved or knew the people involved or lived in and around that property, they're in and out of jail. They're largely transient. So it took Eric some time tracking them down. And he also called the medical examiner to ask her some pointed questions about her ruling. Another person Eric called was a detective from the case, and I listened to this phone call. It was recorded, and this phone call is what makes me think that the police know this was a murder. The investigator doesn't say very much, and I mean, I know he couldn't say anything against his department or his bosses or the state, but he gave absolutely no defense. Whereas the medical examiner Eric talked to was explaining herself and backing up everything she said, this investigator was so passive, he gave them no defense, put up no roadblocks. His manner on the call made me think he is not standing in the way of the private investigator here. And that's one of the things that's so difficult is that even within the investigators, the DA, the medical examiner, they don't even agree. But unfortunately, nothing anyone has done has gotten this case reopened or the manner of death changed. This is shocking to me. When I talked to Eric Eccles, he said that he believes that where DJ was found prejudiced this case from the start. He was found in a trashed out drug house. This trailer, you guys, I can't even tell you. It was trashed. I mean, there was 
dirt and debris everywhere. And I have very little room to judge other people's housekeeping abilities, but this wasn't a place people lived. This isn't a place people thrived. This is where people crashed when they didn't have somewhere else to go. They didn't care. They didn't care about the upkeep. They didn't care about where they were. And so the police walked into that and they opted not to do a thorough investigation from the start. And when it became obvious, they jumped to the conclusion of suicide. The people in power then underestimated DJ's family. To fight the DA and the investigators and the medical examiner, you need to have the means for an independent investigation. And you know what Amanda did? She sold Eric's book from her house and she held bake sales, bake sales, you guys, to pay for Eric's expenses. You also need a certain level of sophistication to navigate the system. And once again, they underestimated DJ's family because Amanda is sharp. She is on it. There is nothing they're going to throw at her that she won't say, well, what about this? If they thought the Fickies were going to take DJ home to bury him and let this go, they were very, very wrong. I'm not saying everyone in this investigation chain wrote DJ off as just another dead addict. But enough of them did that this investigation was harmed from the start and someone is still getting away with murder because of it. Two witnesses told police Mike shot the gun, not DJ. DJ was actively looking for a way out of that trailer, specifically saying he was in fear for his life, and then he was dead. DJ spent weeks telling people Mike might actually kill him one day, but this is still a suicide? For anything to move forward on the criminal side, the medical examiner has to change her ruling, and she has said she's sticking with her ruling. When Eric Eccles asked her, almost incredulously, that even after all this evidence, she's still going to stick with a suicide, she said yes. As it stands at the time of this recording, the criminal case is officially closed and the ruling remains suicide. The family has gone the civil route. They have recently filed a wrongful death suit. Maybe it will not be a criminal jury saying it, but they are hopeful that someone holds Mike accountable for the murder of DJ Fickey. (laughs) 